0: sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects, and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, (laughs) ever controversial or impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to conversations with your lovable never pisses anyone off never been banned from facebook or youtube never been sabotaged or censored for politely expressing a difference of opinion ex-muslim host aina keeping it non-controversial
1: Welcome to episode 28. I have Pakistani-Canadian writer here with me today, Hina Hussein. She wrote a particularly interesting piece for Vice that caught my eye recently, titled I Gave My Mom Shrooms So She Would Open Up About My Father's Death. Hi Hina, how are you doing? Hi,
2: I am doing okay. If my voice sounds a little nasally, I'm just recovering from a flu. So forgive me.
1: Oh, no. Um, I hope you feel better soon. But thanks so much for coming on. This is such a fascinating story, especially coming from, you know, a Pakistani perspective. It's like, I don't know. It hits so many chords with me. Like I've never given my parents drugs, (laughs) but you know, we've joked about it. Me and my siblings were like, can you imagine if like, you know, at this Eid party, we like made magic brownies and just served them. Like it'd be so funny. Like we always joke about that stuff, but you actually did it.
2: (laughs) I actually did it. And, uh, contrary, I had a couple of people reach out to me after the article, uh, went up and they're like, Oh my God, you drugged your mom and you didn't ask for her consent or anything like that. And that's not exactly, I thought about that too, where I'm like, I'll just slip it in her chai and you know, like she wouldn't know. And then she'll just open up and I wouldn't do that because they don't know what's happening to them. And then most likely they'll have a bad trip. And that's not what I wanted. Like, I wanted my mom to kind of know, you know, that she was going to experience some stuff and it might be new and, and, you know, unknown to her and that it was okay. But if I just drugged her, I wouldn't have had the ability to give her that caveat. So I... I thought about that too where I'm like just, just put it in her like you know like pirani or something and like, be, like,
1: <laughs> well I mean party. you know yeah. just to say like when we when we talk about it like me and my siblings or me and my cousins we're always just joking like nobody's actually gonna do it it's just like yeah. a, a what if imagine yeah. how wild this Eid this boring ass Eid party could get yeah. you know <laughs> even if there was just booze there man like Oh, that's a that's a whole other podcast. How boring! How boring! Dizzy dinner parties are at and
2: weddings and, oh, and yeah, yeah. No, and I, weddings. I totally feel you.
1: torture. Um, but yeah, so so to go on about your mom, so you made sure she knew what was going on. You said that she didn't realize it was illegal, though, right? That's the only
2: that's the only information I withheld. I was like, oh, I'm gonna give you, you know, this. This thing that you're going to eat that you know totally organic and and it's going to make you feel funky and it's going to you know, you might want to talk and you might want to, you know, share some stuff. And that's totally OK. The only information I would held was that I was giving her like an Ill- illegal substance. That, yeah. That's pretty
1: much it. that probably wouldn't have uh, helped with a good trip either. Right. <laughs>
2: oh my god she would have probably been like the way i was the first time i did my shows She's like oh my god the police they know they know yeah, yeah. I took they're <laughs> gonna come through that door right now and i'm gonna be arrested you know so i didn't want her experiencing that
1: so i'm surprised though that she said okay to, how did that like how did that go down like i can't imagine my parents saying yes to that
2: um my mom and i we had had like quite a strained relationship for a couple of years after my father's death because uh yeah, for a bunch of different reasons. My my father was, uh, I was estranged from him. You know, I hadn't spoken to him in like a few years before he died. And then he died. And then, you know, my mom, she kind of had like her own, you know, she wanted to take priority, like her grief and her sadness was above everyone else's. And then uh, whenever, you know, we did talk to her, all she wanted to say were these things about how she wants to die and, you know, how, you know, we don't love her anymore and we don't need her anymore. And, you know. I was, I was suffering a lot in, in the sense that I, I couldn't share my grief with my mother about yeah. what I had experienced. So it was better for me to just kind of go off on my own and kind of deal with it on my own. And that made things worse for my mom because now she was like, that was proof for her that I didn't need her anymore because I was abandoning her and stuff. Um, so things with my mom hadn't been like amazing up until that point. So when I gave her those the, the shrooms, Uh, I think she also realized on some level, though I don't think she was in a position to communicate it, that, you know, we needed something to help us bridge that gap. So when I recommended, you know, let's try something and it'll help our relationship. I think she was open to that idea because she knew that our relationship needed some help.
1: Mm -hmm. And I guess she's very open minded in certain ways.
2: Yes. Oh, yeah. My mom, she's pretty open minded. She's, you know, I a couple of other people who who I shared this story with before I wrote it up. So this actually happened in uh, fall of 2015. So the September is not past this past September. It's the September before. So I shared the story with some people um, afterwards verbally. And they were like, you know, I'm having a hard time believing it because people have a certain idea of what a Pakistani Desi brown woman is. You know, what they look like, what they, you know, how they behave, you know, what kind of life they live, how they dress. So on yeah. and so forth. So people, I think people pictured that kind of a woman when I spoke about my mom and my mom is not like that. She's, mm-hmm. you know, she's, uh, uh, she looks very young for her age. She's very well maintained. She's not, you know like the uh, patta and kameez, and cooking at home all the time like she's not that kind of a woman uh so i understand the
1: difference. and by the patta and kameez, you're just referring to the you know the national yes. outfit yeah. i'm just clarifying for people who don't speak or do but yeah i totally i totally relate to that my mom too uh she's Always been very modern and open minded, but I just I don't think I could convince her to do shrooms. Yeah, but um,
2: I, I don't think my mom would have done shrooms had my dad been alive, and, yeah. and that's the thing I'm very upfront with. Uh, I don't think the the family dynamic that I have now with my mother and the rest of my family and and the way my family lives now, I don't think any of that would have been possible had my dad been alive. And I think I think for a lot of people, they don't realize the very significant role the father or the husband of the family plays in keeping the family conservative or traditional. And because my father died, my family could break away from that you know, traditional shell. Yeah, I, I, I won't hide the fact that had he been alive, none of this probably would have happened.
1: And you and you mentioned that he was uh, abusive as well to her, yeah. right? So um, I guess there were so many elements at play there keeping her in a shell and uh, all of a sudden she was free to discover who she was I imagine and how did that how did that trip go down how was it I know you described it in the article but like talking to you is going to be more descriptive I imagine so tell me a bit about that.
2: Um, there were, there were a lot of things in the article that I just couldn't write because of, you know, time and, and, and just space. Uh, but she ended up, did she ended up crying, but not crying in the sense that she was sobbing. It was like, she was talking and there were tears streaming down her face, but at the same time she had a smile and she was, you know, it was, I think she was, a lot of her emotions her uh, emotions that she hadn't dealt with were kind of coming out and she couldn't com- compartmentalize them so you know we were at we were at the Starbucks and she was she was really worried that people were going to look at her and they were going to tell that she was crying and I had to I had to kind of convince her I'm like mom nobody gives a shit you know like nobody cares like you can feel however you whatever you want you can experience whatever you want and she needed to hear that because it was only after she heard that that she was comfortable kind of crying and and talking and and expressing the whole breadth of emotion that was, you know, kind of underlying her experience around my father's death and not just that, but her whole life, you know, she's yeah. starting from the very, very start, you know, her childhood and her parents and their marriage and and you know, her siblings and and the kind of environment that she grew up in and so it was it was a it was a lot uh, for not for not just for me to hear but even for her to kind of unload you know mm-hmm. um, and yeah lot- you
1: opened like some kind of floodgate of emotions because. You know, typically Pakistanis are taught to control their emotions, and you know, you write a really good sentence on that. We're taught that weakness is unattractive, that you should never truly open up to other people because they'll always use that information to put you down and ultimately hurt you, family included. I was taught this too, and the only reason I broke free from this toxic mentality was through experimenting with psychedelics. Now I want to help my mom do the same. So. Uh yeah I mean I think that that nailed it. I mean people are always afraid that if they let themselves be too vulnerable in Pakistani society then someone else will use that information to humiliate them or blackmail them in some way like oh you told me that you're you know having problems with your husband oh well let me humiliate you using this probably- if you don't do what I want you to do. So I saw that kind of politics at play personally, so I know exactly what that culture is like. It's like a very gossip, uh, you know, just throw everyone under the bus to get uh-huh. what you want kind of culture. And I moved to Pakistan, like, from Saudi Arabia, like a very simple... There's no, like, sneaky underhanded... Of course, we have, like, sneaky underhanded people everywhere in every culture, uh-huh. but there's no there's no like kind of cutthroat street smart protect yourself type of mentality that you have to develop you just exist so when I was thrown into Pakistan like as a teenager like just for schooling for a couple of years I had to really learn that really really quickly because I was just honest and upfront about everything I was like oh yeah I experimented with smoking cigarettes and then everybody used that to blackmail you yeah. such an idiot so it's a very judgmental society
2: and and when you have women who have literally nothing to do with their lives you know you're just expected to sit at home and you know look nice for the guests that are going to come over and occasionally you know cook this is this is the sort of culture that develops when women are just you know, trophies for men to just sit at home and just do nothing with, just have idle minds at an idle time. So this sort of gossip culture Mm -hmm. develops around that lifestyle.
1: Yeah. Also, there's a lot of like luxury in like middle upper uh, class Pakistani society, right? Even though it's a poor country, everyone has servants after Mm -hmm. a certain income level. People have Mm -hmm. drivers, people have, you know, someone to come do the dishes, gardener. So people aren't really doing that much. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that lends itself to just
2: idleness, like not literally having nothing to do. And Pakistani society, you know, I was just there. For ten days I went back after fifteen years. I was there last when I was like a you know, fifteen year old little little girl and now I went back for the first time and it's still the same. And there, I met people my age who I had gone to school with and, you know, they were married and their biggest concerns were, oh, my God, you know, I've been married for a year and I'm not getting pregnant and everybody's saying shit about that. You know, like mm-hmm. the expectation is that as soon as you get married, you got to produce a kid, you know, like, yeah. within the first year. And it, it's not it's not a very intellectual culture. There are, but you know aspects of it there are intellectuals you know there are of course yeah. yeah but general population regular people they're not
1: really encouraged to read books or it's intercept. very shallow yeah, yeah. And, and I I think that one part of that is explained obviously by poverty right so the the, the people that can't afford basic things like education mm-hmm. food and stuff obviously they're Busy trying to get that, yeah. and then the people who can afford it, um for some reason, they're more interested in things like I don't know how big your waist size is or what yeah. how light your skin is. The 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 more you can bleach it, the lighter it is. I don't yeah. know. Like it's, yeah,
2: I think I I the way women I understand- are very
1: commodified because they become like this product on the market, right? Like you yeah. you have an ex- expiration date. Uh, you can't hit like what, I don't know. Maybe the age has grown Mm -hmm. now, but at one point, it's still 30. It's still 30. 30. 30. If
2: you're a woman and you're (laughs) 30 and you're not married, God help you. You know, you're, you're, you're lucky if somebody with like one limb will marry you, you know, like it's still, (laughs) it's still like that. Um,
1: I remember like being a teenager and just going to visit my grandma and she'd be like, oh, you've been spending too much time at the swimming pool in Saudi Arabia. Look how dark you are. Yeah, Who yeah. will marry you? And she'd like freak out. And that would just it would piss me off because I'm like, I'm not really considering marriage at this point first of all that's not really my goal in life yeah uh, that i'm going to preserve some sort of skin shade for a future husband and secondly what kind of an asshole would i be getting <laughs> if he's only going to marry me based on because how your skin yeah, yeah.
2: um I, when I was there, I, I realized I I went there, you know, as an adult for the first time with the self awareness and the knowledge that I've accumulated living in Canada and the and the introspection I've experienced. That I went there with that, and I I, I realized that. What's happening there mostly is it's completely, you're completely right. Poverty is a big thing. So, you know, we have Maslow's hierarchy of needs, five levels, right? Exactly. Uh, Most people are, they're stuck at level one. They, you know, they don't even have basic physical needs met. They don't don't know if they're going to be able to pay the bills next month, if their kids are going to be able to go to school, if they're going to be able to pay for tuition. And most people are on that level. You can't really expect them to self-actualize when they're on the first level. Yeah, exactly. But the richer people, what I saw in them was that they had moved past that level. They had moved on to level two, which is safety. And then they, because they were not on level one, they felt that they had made it. You know, they're like, because I'm not living in poverty, I have made it. They don't really realize that Maslow's, I don't even know if they're aware of it, but Maslow's hierarchy has five levels and the top is self-actualization, right? So they move to level two and they look down on level one and they go like, okay, I'm not
1: there. But security is not not something that really anybody has in Pakistan. So part Mm -hmm. of you is always stuck there. Like even the really, really, really rich people, even when they're traveling with, you know, armed gunmen, like they can be shot by their own guards.
2: Yeah. And so, that's what happened, I think, with the, the governor of Punjab or something. Exactly. And, yeah,
1: yeah. 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 So
2: and and yeah, it's I I feel like I came back a little more empathetic towards Pakistani people after this trip and you know what I saw and, and security really is a big thing there. When I was there I was there for 10 days and there were four terrorist attacks in the 10 days that I was there, you know? So I I get that, that safety and security are are big issues. But at the same time, I don't think those are excuses for not confronting some of the very problematic aspects of our culture that, you know, when I lived in Pakistan, safety and security were there, you know, 20 years ago, all these terrorism and stuff was not a big issue. But these problems, issues with women and abuse and neglect these were still there. So these are not problems that exist just because we don't have safety in Pakistan. These have existed before our current political climate.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we've had a terrible political climate since the, since the beginning of the country, right? It's only yeah. gotten progressively worse. But, but yeah, I think also religion plays a large role in that, right? Like you introduce religion like a really stifling oppressive nitpicky ocd kind of system to control every aspect of your existence okay. and it's just a really toxic mix right poverty uh lesser education and um religion religion, on top of that. Yeah. <laughs> religion yeah so so even the people that break out of the poverty um and uh, have some, some form of security, I guess, uh, they still have this religious barrier, uh-huh. right? Religion is always a virtue. It's always glamorizing. And, and it and it has so many backwards aspects to it that you can't uh-huh. fully self-actualize under that, especially yeah. if it's as potent as Islam is in, in Pakistan, right?
2: And it's gotten worse now. You know, when I was there, I remember... You know, you never really saw women in niqabs or burqas. That was not a yeah. common thing to see in Pakistan. That was even a woman in a hijab was kind of like, okay, there's a woman in a hijab over there. Like you noticed it. You know, it was not not a very common sight to see. I think I think historically, Pakistan has had a liberal interpretation of Islam, but that has changed in the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was there this time, there were so many women. In full face coverings and head coverings yeah. and another another thing I saw was a lot of houses and new buildings and developments had Allah written on them oh I remember, the, I remember I yeah. remember the
1: houses always having these like calligraphy things yeah
2: that was not common like when I was growing up in Pakistan that was not a common thing where you wrote religious scripture that on seems also to house. be
1: um a result of some kind of, like, nouveau riche attitude, like, gaudy, like, Donald Trump-like... Yes. uh desire to showcase how religious you are even though on the inside you might be like uh you know dealing heroin or whatever <laughs> your house on the outside trafficking, trafficking prostitutes and yeah right and, you you yeah. your house on the outside will have these golden quranic ayahs you yes. know that are like studded with gems or whatever just to show that you are this pious family inside yeah. who knows what you're doing
2: and it's not just houses anymore. Like when I was there, it was it was buildings. It was office buildings. It was new development that had a whole bunch. And that was very strange for me because that's not the Pakistan that I remember. I definitely felt that Pakistan this time around. I went after you know close to two decades had become a lot more conservative and religious, and it was. It was sad. It was unfortunate to see that because the culture is being muddled with the religion and it's, you know, it's it's unfortunate to see that.
1: Yeah, it's getting worse and worse because of Saudi influence, right? Like yes. that has been imported over there. And the Sufi culture declines. and
2: not just Saudi influence. The people I spoke with, they're like, you know, the nouveau riche, as You were saying now, what the nouveau riches do is they get jobs in the Middle East. They go to Dubai or they go to Oman or Qatar or Kuwait, and over there they see, you know, this more uh, extreme variety of Islam, and they come back and they bring it back with them. So right. you're, you're absolutely right that this is this is something that the nouveau riches is sort of it's it, it's being driven by that socioeconomic demographic of people who have come out of poverty, but are not ac- exactly rich. They are intellectually still in poverty, but they have the ability to go out of Pakistan as far as the Middle East and kind of bring that culture back with them and and practice it in Pakistan. So yeah. there's a specific set of conditions.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We went off on a bit of a tangent <laughs> there, but back to your your trip with your mom, or I mm-hmm. mean, you were her sober guide through that yes. right so yeah. so tell me more about like what how did she react when it hit her how how did it start like um, how does that how does a Pakistani mother <laughs> react on shrooms um she wasn't I had to
2: ask questions you know she, her her thoughts were I don't know your listeners how many people have done shrooms or if they're aware of what happens but it's a lot of uh And every drug is different and every person reacts differently to different drugs. Uh, But in my personal experience, and I think my my mother's experience echoed this, was that whatever you're feeling inside, whatever emotions you're harboring or, or suppressing or, you know, not allowing to come up, they will find a way up on mushrooms. And that's what I had always experienced when I took mushrooms. And that's what that's what happened with my mom. She her grief actually was not about my dad it was about her childhood and her own family and like her mother and her father and I think it's understandable why she didn't express a lot of grief for my father you know he had been he had been dead like a couple of years at this point and you know he was an abusive alcoholic and I I don't think she was really sad that then he died, I think she was just sad that she had lost purpose in life. That's what, that's what her, her sadness was being driven by. It wasn't really at, at losing my father. Um, but then when she did start speaking and, and, and opening up, a lot of her sadness came from her childhood. And that's something that I realized, uh, my mother had never dealt with, you know, the sort of sexual abuse that she had experienced at her house as a teenager, what had happened to her when her father died and how she was treated at, you know, how she was not wanted. She was neglected. A lot of her sadness was from there. And I just realized, I'm like, has my mom been harboring this for her whole life? Mm. You know, she was, she's 50 when we you know had this conversation we did this thing and i'm like she got married when she was 21 mm-hmm. so i'm like you know i couldn't help but think like have you been carrying this in you for the last 30 years you know and that was uh it was uh, it was eye opening and i realized that my mom's probably not the only one yeah. um, you know a lot of our parents have never really dealt with their the trauma that they experienced growing up in that, you know, very difficult culture. It's mm-hmm. not an easy culture to grow up in, and a lot of our and I and I realized that my father probably suffered from that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I I became a lot more empathetic towards him after seeing what my mother had to deal with, and you know, my father grew up in poverty and. He had his own issues with his family and, you know, neglect was definitely at play. And and then in that you throw in toxic masculinity where you're a man and you don't feel anything and, you know, you don't talk about what makes you sad. Mm. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that I'm not trying to excuse my father's behavior. What he did was, you know, what he did to me and my mom was, was it was horrible. But it make you understand you end up understanding why so many of our men Become like this, you know. They have no avenue for expressing anything other than anger and and the drive to make money and to be successful. And I understood these things about my father after, you know, after my after talking to my mom and seeing what she had to deal with. I have no doubt that my father had his own, you know, bag of crap that he had to deal with that he never did. You know, um, he died with all that in him, you know, my father died. uh, He was drunk and he fell down the stairs and he broke his neck and he died. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I have no no doubt in my mind that my father was also suffering a lot internally, but he had no way of letting that, you know, letting, letting somebody help him, letting somebody connect with him. And, And I think it was the first time, in my life that i i felt bad for my dad you know after talking to my mom i like so how
1: how was he like who found him like that must have been a
2: yeah he was at a party so he wasn't at our house so he was at uh, he was at somebody else's house and it was like four or five a.m in the morning and he stumbled into their house totally drunk and he took a step down and he slipped and uh and he just broke his neck and he died on contact. And the police came to our house. Like
1: the on the morning. outside of their house
2: or no, on inside, the inside? Inside. And his body was found by the daughter of the family. So she was like uh, 15 oh when she found his body. And, uh, and you know, I had never really processed any of my father's death or his life prior to speaking to my mom in that way. And it 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 helped me see just how much suffering our parents have unnecessarily gone through and they pass that trauma and suffering onto their children. And that's something that bothers me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I understand that they are a product of their generation. They're a product of their time. And you know, what happened to them is very unfortunate. It's, it's sad, but I don't think that they're trauma should be transferred on to to the next generation because our, our people, so to speak, we're never going to be able to, you know, match our potential to do, you know, real great things in life and in the world if we don't address how this sort of, this cultural, religious, you know, Uh, practices have they don't just influence the generation that lived through it they influence the next generation and potentially the generation Mm -hmm, after mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. as well and the reason I wrote that article was to kind of bring to light that we need to you know we not just my generation but our parents generation we need to accept that this is the you know, this is what we were handed in life, and it's it's unfortunate, but we need to deal with it. We can't just pretend like it doesn't exist because we, we hurt ourselves and we hurt each other, and we hurt our future by not
1: confronting these issues. Right. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started my blog about sexuality in Pakistan as well because, I mean, there's, there's just so much repressed. It's not even just about sexuality. Like, as you said, we're just... People in our culture are carrying around so many feelings because they are not allowed to just express themselves, right? Like even just the arts are not something that's encouraged. Even by people who are interested in the arts, you know, like I've seen people who've been uh, in my family who've been told by their parents that not to waste time on whatever it is, music, yeah. acting, whatever. And I'm like, but you're doctor,
2: lawyer, engineer. Yes. That's
1: it. <laughs> and I'm like, but your dad did that to you. So if, if anything, you should understand. Yeah. But they don't. But they don't. They, they, yeah. They yeah. just repeat that cycle. So. Yeah. So, so to think that, oh, you know, it's just this generation that's living
2: through it. The next generation will be better. Yeah, the next generation will be a little better. But in the globalized world that we're living in, you know, I see this in Pakistani Canadians here in Canada who have, you know, they understand something is fundamentally wrong in our culture, is fundamentally wrong with us and the way we operate. But they can't do anything about it. You know, they see how like how, how free and open life can be because we live in Canada, but when they go home, when they go to their parents, they're not allowed to live that life. Well, yeah,
1: many people live that double life, but I mean, also many people don't. So, so for example, me and my family, we're pretty close and we, you know, I've never really had secrets from them. They've always known when, you know, I've questioned religion, we openly debate stuff. And so I'm very fortunate that way, but uh, my husband's well, family, like that. yeah, my husband's family is much more conservative, and mm-hmm. you know he's had to like just shield certain aspects of his life from his family, and that can get to be a pretty lonely existence, right? Because your yes. family doesn't know who you are, yes. and it's frustrating for me to see. I guess because I come from a, a privileged background where I've never had to hide who I am. Mm-hmm. So, and and I've seen many people like cousins, you know, just they they can't fully be honest with their families. So I struggle with that a bit. I'm like, just do it. Just do it. Just rip the bandaid off. This is how we make change, right? People don't realize that this double life, this people think that this
2: is confined to, oh, just with my parents, but it's not. This flows over into every aspect of our lives. When we get married, when we have partners, when we fall in love, because we've learned to always hide a part of ourselves or to always lie about a part of ourselves, we, we bring those practices into our other relationships as well. So people might say, Oh, I just lived this double life for my parents, but without realizing you could be taking aspects of that, that lying and that deceitful behavior into your marriage, for example, or into your relationship with your friends or with your coworkers. And it's, it's very hard to kind of pinpoint that because you've become used to that. Mm You become used to being this you know, other see, places. I don't see
1: it as like a pattern of deceitful mm-hmm. behavior. I see more like it's just this one circumstance under which people feel pressured, but then they see like everywhere else they can be free, so they tend to be like much more open. But then all of a sudden, closed off around their families, right? So it's not really like. Oh, I mean, obviously, different types of people exist. So. I don't want to say that nobody carries this pattern around, but from what I see, I see like a relief of getting away from that when you have an opportunity. And, and yeah, I just, I just want to, I just want to make it known
2: people like they, they, they message me about this, that I'm like, you know, I'm making generalization or something, of course, I understand that not every single Pakistani person is like this. You know, I don't think everybody my mom's age has suffered through trauma. Yes, you know, of course, I don't yeah. think that. Of course not. I'm just making an observation based on overwhelming numbers of cases that I have seen. You know, I was there in Pakistan and I met my mom, other uh, my mom's family, and I, and I saw that my mom's not the only one who's gone through the shit that she told me about. You yeah. know, like there's other siblings in her family. And... Her family at large who've gone through that as well. My dad's family has gone through their own bag of uh, of crap. So I'm not trying to say that every single person is like this. I'm just I, and that's something that a lot of people you know to say that that's what I'm saying. But I'm not. So I just want to make it known. I understand that there are exceptions. You know, Aina's family clearly is is more liberal than generally what we would expect from Pakistani families, and there are quite a few of those. But they're not in the majority they're yeah yeah
1: absolutely they're a very not. small minority yeah 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 so i mean i i consider myself lucky to have that but yeah so i guess that's why i struggle to understand a lot of these like um, or relate rather to the regular culture because i've just not been raised like that mm-hmm. um And my parents have always been very open and willing to talk to me about anything. But I, of course, I see that, you know, in some ways, my dad has carried his feelings around as well. So he has that as well. He, you know, he lived through the partition of India. Uh uh, So he was a baby then. And he carries so many, not a baby, but he was maybe like, I don't know, six, seven, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But So he carries so many stories from that time. And he just, you know, he he doesn't talk about them. Occasionally, something will come up and he'll say something. And he'll reveal this huge, huge deal that we never knew he had to go through, you know? And I'm like, why haven't you told us that before? And my mom is like, why haven't you ever told me this before? And he's like, well, I I don't know. It never came up. And it's it's so weird. Like... I could never imagine withholding such huge parts of my life story from my spouse, you know? Yeah. But he's taught that this is strength to just not wallow in sadness or whatever, right? So he's talked about how um, when him and his brothers finally got enough, because they they grew up in a lot of poverty as well, leaving everything behind in India. Uh Uh-huh. When they grew up a bit, they got an education and they were finally, you know, at their first jobs, they couldn't afford like food properly before that. And I guess tomatoes or something were a luxury. So he has this one story that they all went and got like a bag of tomatoes and they cried and they like just ate them like apples you know like yeah. and i'm like that's so sad dad yeah. like how could you just like never share that with us that t- tomatoes were such a big deal for you guys yeah
2: you know yeah no i i absolutely agree and these might seem like i i don't know these seem like such These experiences make us who we are, you know, like like experiencing hardship, experiencing, you know, seeing your family struggle. A lot of these experiences stay with us, but we're not we're never allowed to acknowledge that we're never allowed to be like, yeah, you know what? I saw a lot of suffering in my family and that influenced me and that shaped me. And I harbor a lot of sadness because of that. And it affects me. We're not allowed to do that, especially men. And for men, it is just like total taboo because it's like, oh, my God, you're such a pussy. You're talking yeah, to your well, about just, sadness. Yeah.
1: Even just saying things like I love you. Right. Like, I feel like yeah. my dad has been saying that more now that he's older, like now that we're older. I don't know. Yeah. But all of a sudden it's he's become OK with it. But when we were younger, I don't yeah. remember him like saying that much. So it's, yeah. it's, it's weird. Like they do totally get trained to control their feelings. It's not even something that's um, probably limited to Pakistani culture, but it is a big part of that. Men yeah. are taught not to express themselves very much.
2: Yeah, I uh, my partner he's he's Indian, and I it's the same, it's the exact same thing. in in that culture as well, where it's like, no, you know, like you can't, you can't talk, you can't cry. There's nothing you can do. You should only be focused on, you know, making money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's it. That's, that's your focus. That's your worth. Yeah. 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 So, and it's, uh, and I think eventually a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of our parents, they, you know, they come to these realizations later in life, you know, that they, they held all this in and it, and it affected them. I think that the years, the decades that they don't deal with this, I think that that needs to be addressed, that you can't deal with this when you're, like, 60 or, you know, 65 or you're, you know, like, you become a grandparent and only then are you comfortable opening up, you know. Everybody deserves a chance to live a happy, fulfilling life, our parents included, and I think that we need to, you know, somehow get them, to be okay with these things so that their life can be more fulfilling, uh, for themselves. It's not for us, you know, it's not when I gave my mom, these shrooms. It was, I wanted to help her. You Mm -hmm. know, I wanted to be like, I want you to have a happy life. Right. I don't, don't, this has nothing to do with me. I, you know, I'm very fortunate. I have built a life for myself. I'm happy. I, you know, you know, in, in the in the things that i'm doing but i want you to find that fulfillment in life as well and that's a very strange concept for a lot of uh, a lot of the older generation which so is do like... you think
1: that she has changed since like do you think she's been more open to just expressing her feelings or something or has it had any impact on her or on your relationship since you guys did this together
2: yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't write about this, but my mom and I, this, this is not the first time, this is not the only time that we did it. This was the first time. And, you know, we've done micro dosage, um, every few, every few months afterwards where, you know, she'll take a little bit and then she'll talk and you know, whatever she wants to talk about, whatever's on her mind, because it, again, she's fifty. I don't think we can go through her whole life in like one, yes. you know, room trip. So, uh, so we do this quite regularly, and our relationship has definitely, definitely improved. Um, seven or eight months after she took she, she took these shrooms she was like my family and I we have a whatsapp we have a whatsapp group and we message each other oh yeah and we do like, too <laughs> and, and she goes she goes and she's like I want to take a vacation with all my children okay and that's very strange because that's Aww. not something my mom ever said you know it's, that's she's sweet like, so, so the fact that she was comfortable expressing that—that that she wants to do something that that she wants to do, you know, not yeah. because she's required to or somebody's asking her to or she thinks she should do that—it's something that's coming from her and that she's comfortable saying that. That was a big thing, and and we were all like, okay, mom, where do you want to go? She's like, I want to go to Iceland, and we're like, okay. The thing is that. You can't just like give your mom shrooms and be like, okay, mom, you know, I helped you address your issues, now go live your life. They're going to need a lot of help, you (laughs) know, like mom, she's going to need a lot of help. So when she opened up, she's like, this is what I want. My siblings and I, we weren't like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I can't, you know, it's like, no, we had to... We had to show to her that that this was important to us, that that we valued that she was that this is what she wanted, that this was important to us. Mm-hmm. So we all, you know, we're like, okay, we took that, we took our time off work. My sister, she was in school, she like managed that. And it might not seem like a big deal to, you know, especially white families who do this like very easily, but to a brown family, this is like a big deal. Where yeah, yeah. Like your, your parent is telling you that they wanna do something with you. Because it's coming from their heart, you need to you need to pay attention to that. You know, you need to you need to give that a lot of value. Yeah. That's not something that happens very easily.
1: Yeah, I mean where, you know, hugs are N- you know not as frequent where i love you's are kind of yeah. frowned upon this this kind of thing becomes very very valuable so yes
2: when she did that when she opened up we were all like okay yes we're doing this you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make this happen so if we had been like oh mom i'm sorry you know it she would have been discouraged she would have been like what's the point of you know being comfortable and expressing all this if i'm just gonna be met with resistance
1: and yeah. no yeah. no. so you did you guys took her to iceland
2: yeah we all went to iceland in june last year and uh, when we came back she was like oh i would like to have a family vacation every year if you guys want and we're like okay done you know we'll, so we'll go sweet. on a family vacation every year so this year we're going to oshiega uh, for our family vacation in montreal
1: very cool so you basically yeah. have rekindled your relationship with your mom over shrooms
2: a, a big part of that yes shrooms yeah. and and and
1: but also now to the kids listening, you know, don't do drugs and (laughs) don't do drugs with your mom. I'm not, I'm
2: not, I didn't write this to be like, give your, give your parents drugs, whether they want it or not. You know, I just, I just wanted to reveal how much it it takes for our parents to open up, you know, it's not an easy thing for them and it's not an easy thing for us. Uh, And this is what unfortunately it took for me and my mother to kind of connect on this level. I'm not saying everybody's going to have to do this to connect with mm-hmm. their parents, uh, but this is what it took for me and I I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if the if a lot of people feel challenged uh, connecting with their parents. And yeah, I like I that. said
1: my dad, you know, he d- doesn't talk much about his, you know, uh, difficult past that he's had yeah. in terms of, you know, poverty and leaving everything behind in a country that was home to him. But, yeah, it it does take a lot. It takes a yeah. lot for them to open up, and I, I haven't experienced that with my mom. I'm very fortunate. She is the most expressive and bubbly person ever, so I don't think I'll need shrooms for that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I can only imagine. If, that, if I did that with my dad, what would I... D- what would come out? What would come out? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So much of him is a mystery, too, because... He, he obviously went through a lot, right? Okay. There was so much violence during that period. I'm sure he saw some things that and no kids should have to see. Yeah, I, I think there's also, you know, the stigma of
2: mental health where you have to go see a therapist or a psychiatrist or, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not crazy, okay? I don't need to go talk to no counselor or therapist. There's also, there's so much preventing us and our families from really opening up like there's really nothing that encourages us to open up everything is discouraging um so yeah you i know. think the
1: new generation of people can can make that change happen i mean you see it happening slowly slowly yeah. some changes in uh, pakistani tv shows the storylines are slightly more progressive um you know some more arts and theater being celebrated there these little things they matter you know yes. they matter so much and yes. i know i know we're speaking uh, as two very privileged uh pakistanis who have like seriously no idea what 90% of the country uh-huh. lives in for them theater and the arts is like a far cry from their reality so yeah for that, I don't, I don't know what we can do to change yeah. life for majority of Pakistanis like that. Like, I, I mean, everything's just so bad. Yeah, it, it is. The education, school education is yeah. so bad. Like that would be the first thing to make a difference. Like if we could just stop having like insanely corrupt politicians that uh-huh. just take <laughs> taxpayer money and pocket it all the time, yeah. then Put we could in Panama. <laughs> Yeah, it's just
2: Uh, the one where I was staying. I was staying at my uncle's house and he had a a, like like a a female housekeeper um, and her brother. Well, she was about my age, maybe a little older and she had a young brother. He was, I think, uh, 11, 10 or 11 years old. And he went to government schooling, you know, like these are people who are poor people, you know, there's their servants. And he came over one day and, you know, I I was home and I, and I spoke to him. I'm like, Hey, you know, so what do you study in school? What, what class are you in? And he's like, uh, he was younger than 10. He was like nine, nine years old. I think he was in grade three. And I'm like, so what are you studying? And he's like, I study Urdu and Islamia. Yeah. And that's it. And like, you don't study anything else. He's You don't study, like, you don't study science or, or like, geography or history? It's like, no. (laughs) And it's like, okay, that's
1: just literally religion. (laughs) And how sad is it that that's not limited to Pakistan? Over here in Canada, these Al-Huda cult schools, right? They are programming women to want to pull their kids out of regular school. And I've seen this happen with a relative. She has pulled out her kids of normal school. I and mean, this is legal to do. And she's put them in like Islamic private school, which yeah. teaches like basically nothing, nothing except yes. for Islam and some kind of whatever class is thrown in there just to satisfy yeah. whatever boxes they need to tick. Right. Yeah. Like, so I think they told me that it was um, 10 to 13 year olds that were in the same math class. Oh like, my God. <laughs> I, I mean, that that's, it's, insane. This is in Canada. And this increased after the sex ed
2: curriculum went live. I think two, two years back, I think the Muslim schools were like maxed out. Put their kids in because everybody wanted to take their kids out of like public, uh, public school and put it in Islamic school because heaven forbid we teach our kids about sex and masturbation and contraception. Yeah, but and there were so many
1: misconceptions and hysteria spread around yeah. that sex ed curriculum too. Like just total utter bullshit. They were like telling, you know, like, or doing Arabic, like, notes going around yeah. the community saying that your kids will be taught how to masturbate. Like, there'll be masturbation <laughs> classes, teaching them how to touch themselves. Like, this uh-huh. is utter bullshit, you know? <laughs> uh, they, I read about some of that. I couldn't. I actually couldn't read the whole thing
2: because it would make me angry. Yeah. You know? But it would physically get, get me, like, my God, like, what the fuck is going on, man? You know, like, it's... It, Sorry, sorry, listeners.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I I get I get a little angry when I think about these things. <laughs> well, yeah, and I uh, I mean my my own book caused a lot of anger. I don't know if yes. you ever read my you you yes, read it right? I did. I, that's how I actually found out about you when uh, all the
2: controversy regarding your book.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were so many angry parents in Canada about just like a very simple book about love. Yeah. <laughs> just because there's two dudes in love and that's yeah. just not acceptable if they're in set in Pakistan.
2: Yeah. So no, it's, it's definitely, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. And the only thing, the only thing I would say that maybe might encourage people to put in the work and try to address these issues is that we are going to inherit in, inherit all this trauma and all these issues. If we don't deal with them, like mm-hmm. if, if our parents went through this and, and they, the way they raised us and the way they taught us about, about life, it was directly influenced by their experiences living in that country, in that culture. And we are the recipients of all of that. So if we don't take a step up and say this, we have to address this, we are going to have to live cycle through this sort of, this life, this lifestyle as well. And we're ultimately gonna be the ones who suffer. So it's a lot of work. But if we don't decide to 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 address it we're we're going to be the ones who are going to have to pay the price for it
1: right right you, you just have to confront the issues and people trying to do that are getting so much opposition right yes. even from the western left and the western right just trying to co-opt them like There's just a mess on all sides. There's no way uh, someone like you or me speaking about these issues will get taken seriously if Mm -hmm. the Trumpians keep trying to use us to further like a hateful narrative, right? Yeah. And then the left will be triggered into further denial and further denial. Yeah. So, So we're just screwed either way. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how we break that cycle, but you have to basically earn the trust of the people to show that we're not just right-wing mouthpieces. And it doesn't yeah. help when someone goes along and becomes a right-wing mouthpiece. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why Muslims that vote Trump or ex-Muslims that go far right, those people I find are really, really muddying the water for everyone trying to speak on these issues. I remember you talking to me as well how... How you accidentally gave an interview with a Trump supporter.
2: I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? (laughs) I didn't know he was a Trump supporter. I, like, I, like, researched him afterwards. I'm like, oh, my God, I hope nobody listens to that interview. So he he tried to get you to... To say how amazing Trump's book was and how pragmatic the Bible was.
1: Oh, good Lord. <laughs>
2: Dude, we were live and I'm like, oh my God, <gasps> you're a Trump supporter. Like I had that realization when he asked me that question and I was just like, oh, you know, I haven't read Trump's book, so I don't know, oh, uh, <laughs> dear. which is the truth. I haven't read either of those books,
1: but but surely, uh, yeah. you know, they're full of shit.
2: <laughs> um. But yeah, no, that was an uh, that was an experience. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the stuff is more more right wingers are open to these things than left left. Yeah, but but, but that's yeah. that's for all the
1: wrong reasons, yes. right? Exactly. So, it's to
2: further their agenda. Like, ha, see, we're right. All these people are barbarians and we should ban them from coming into our country. Like, that's their exactly. agenda. Exactly.
1: So the people that get seduced by the welcoming of the right, the welcomeness of the right, yeah, I find are just making it harder for everyone to get taken seriously, ultimately. Because yeah. what needs to be shown is that, no, this isn't like a hate-driven agenda. This is an actual bunch of problems that needs to be addressed rationally calmly and without any like bigotry or whatever involved but we can't we cannot make that impact until people among us are going with the fox news because that's the easier route yeah you know they're getting their platform, they're being heard, they don't care, you know, who's
2: like who, who they're kind of going to, as long as they get to say what they want and people agree with them, they're, they're happy. And I have to admit that is very tempting. It you is know? tempting. Of course, yeah.
1: that's the path to success, but that's yeah. not, that's not the, that's the path to like, whatever, financial success and more popularity. Existed, more, t- yeah. It's not success in the sense of actually getting this message across. Yeah. I mean, this is just handing a gift to like the Reza Aslans of the world who want to point at uh, so-called, you know, Muslim reformers and say, oh, look, they're just crazy Trump voters or uh, ex-Muslims and say, oh, look, they just, you know, they they're work with. Informants. <laughs> Pardon?
2: They're native informants. That's like a big thing. Native I hear informants. About exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. So this is this just helps people discredit us. So, yeah.
2: I, I completely agree. And in my opinion, I think I, I think as much as it would be great that, you know, the left were to kind of support us and, and you know, give us a platform for, for these things, I think what needs to happen is, like, more regular people from our communities need to start getting involved because I see a lot of them as just bystanders, you know, they're just yeah. like... Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing what my parents taught me and I don't want to have any, you know, I don't want to cause any ripples or whatever. I just want to sit and practice my religion and I don't really want to do anything, you know?
1: But that's the thing. You have to be a representative. This is why your article uh, caught my attention because I think it's great to highlight stories about Muslims, Pakistanis, ex-Muslims, whatever, that are outside of the awful norm, like, you know, of... Extremism or whatever. I thought this story about you sharing a moment with your mother or bonding over hallucinogenic drugs is just such a unique, little, different Pakistani story, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the people need to come forward and just show the diversity amongst us. I think that would be great so yeah. that we can stop being conflated with the orthodox hijabi uh, Muslims all the time There's there's so much diversity in our Culture as well Yeah. And yeah
2: absolutely and, and I think this this Tendency to just be bystanders And just you know be like oh We're not going to get involved this again Is part of our culture we're not Really encouraged to take on leadership Roles we're not yeah. really encouraged to you know Think deeply about issues and, and see how they affect us And our community at large we're just told to Keep our head down and just follow and Just do what our parents say and just do what society expects and just you know just be become a doctor and engineer and that's it you know why do you yeah. have to why do you have to think about more than what is necessary and i think regular pakistanis regular muslims regular ex-muslims they need to get more involved and have their voices heard so it's not just you know we're not seen as like just fringe group of people who are just you know trying to get noticed yeah
1: yeah yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Like exactly us. exactly so um Yeah, we just need more voices. Even just the gender roles are so strict in our culture, right? Like how you said about your mother, you said... She explains how she could never leave my father because without him, we wouldn't have had the lifestyle that his money could provide. Her family wasn't willing to support her. Her mother thought it would bring shame upon the family if her daughter got divorced with two young children and that no one would marry my mother afterwards. So without any financial resources, a job or help from her own family, my mother decided the only option was to rough it out with my dad, a 25-year, mostly sexless marriage. She was just in it to give her kids the resources. She knew she couldn't provide them on her own. Now, this is a common story. Like, I've heard this time and time again from my blog. I've heard it even from my relatives, like uh, a few people I can think of that are probably just married because... For the kids. And I don't even think that's healthy for the kids, to be honest. That's
2: not. Trust me, as somebody, as a child who was raised in a house like that, it is, it messes you up, really does. So when you say, I'm in it for my kids, you're probably doing your kids more harm. Yeah, yeah. Like psychologically, you're messing them up. You might be, physically, you might be able to provide them like a big car or a nice house, but psychologically, it messes them up. Trust me, I know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, two unhappy parents is just not a good way of parenting no so i mean we need to break down these taboos and barriers and just the idea that a woman's identity is tied to her marital status or her motherhood status you know like without being married she's nothing who will marry her again how do we tackle this stuff without being sensitive without being tribal like i know that a lot of people have attacked me uh for writing on these topics because A, I'm not, you know, Pakistani enough, because I I don't live there, so they feel that I'm not entitled to an opinion about my motherland, and shit like that is what really holds us back, I feel, right? Even even if it's someone who lived there, like someone like Malala, for instance, she freaking got shot in the head. If she criticizes something, they're like American puppet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So because nobody really wants to think deeply about themselves. Nobody wants to look inwards. It's always easier to point a finger to somebody else and say, Oh, you're the one who's messed up. Not me. Yeah. You know? So why should, why do I have to think about my actions? And yeah. it's, it's, it's really toxic. You know, I, I, People, when they get out of this, they just wash their hands off of it. They're like, I don't want to deal with this bullshit anymore. You know, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to be happy. And I don't blame them for that because this is, this is not, these are not easy issues to tackle. There's, there's issues around, you know, education, religion, poverty, you know, gender roles. There's so much, and it's all mixes together to give us this toxic mix that we see manifested in in our parents or the older generations or in or in us, and so I understand why a lot of people who leave that part of the world or leave that lifestyle are like, I don't give a shit, you know, like I'm okay.
1: Yeah, and then they're seen as you know traitors as well for yeah. for not being in the thick of it, right? Like, yes. oh, you left us behind. You don't get to complain. Yes. Yes. So. And- it's there's very there's, complicated. No, there's no winning.
2: Yeah. There's, there's no, no winning.
1: winning. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even just a concept like love, right? It's so taken for granted over here that you're going to end up being with someone that you love. You like, right? You're going to marry someone because you love them or yeah. people are just expected to marry at a certain age in Pakistan. Arranged marriages still happen and they may yeah. have changed like from back in the day where you'd only get to see your spouse like... On your wedding night or whatever, and now yeah. I guess it's become more like oh, your parents will introduce you, and it's then
2: semi arranged. You get to hang out, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> wow, thank you, thank you yeah. so much for allowing them to hang out with each other before yeah. they go on a date or something. Yeah. you know, hold hands. <gasps> yeah, yeah. So. I mean, so that's why there's so many probably loveless marriages. You don't really get to know... Like, of course, there's so many people in Pakistan that fall in love. I'm not saying that there aren't. But there's so much controversy surrounding it. Like, I mean, my own marriage, right? Like, and we weren't even in Pakistan, but... I've written about this on my blog before not from my family's end but as I mentioned my my in-laws are conservative they weren't such uh, huge fans of uh me. Yeah. <laughs> and they you know they're still not years later. Yeah. Um there's so many things about me that are just so too untraditional, right? Tattoos, piercings, lack of religiosity. It's just I'm the worst ever deal. Yeah. The worst ever package. <laughs> so I mean, love love often comes with like huge uh, Romeo and Juliet type of dramatic stories, right? Mm-hmm. Not not always, but I've seen a few in my family with drama, and you know, like either it's someone's the wrong sect, or people have to be brought around, and they have to be reconciled, and yeah. it's just it's I went,
2: never I went easy. Oh, I've entered that too. Yeah, so my, my partner, I've we've I've been with him for six years now, and he's he's an ex Hindu Indian. Mm-hmm. You know, but I in you know I think in our culture there's no such thing as an atheist. You know, nobody recognizes atheism. It's either or a christian or a hindu or, a, or whatever you yeah can. yeah my mom gets like confused too yeah.
1: my mom is like what do you mean like are yeah. you a secret christian like she's not yeah. angry or anything she just yeah. doesn't understand how you can not have no, no religion yeah yeah that just it just does not compute <laughs> yeah so, so,
2: so my partner like he's he was raised hindu but he's an atheist like myself and to my mom that was just she she couldn't compute, you know, like, so she's like, Oh, so he's a Hindu. I'm like, no, he's not, you know? Uh, okay. So if the, if he's not a Hindu, you know, he's, he's too dark and you know, I'm oh my uh, gosh, I'm, really? I'm very fair <laughs> skin. And this is like, you know, six years ago when I introduced uh, him to my mom when my dad was still alive as well. And my dad had similar things to say about him.
0: He about like, his skin color. Yeah.
1: Like it's so funny I, but, because I feel that a lot of people that are outside of the culture are not aware of the, Shadism.
2: Racism. Racism. I mean, I'm sorry, it's just flat out racism that we have in our culture. Yeah. uh,
1: But yeah, it's like about different shades within the same race. So yeah, I don't think people understand how racist and discriminatory
2: minorities can be, you know, like how much in Pakistan, how much the Sunni sect hates the Ahmadiyya sect and the Shia sect and what, that we don't give them rights, that we don't let them pray in the same mosques as us, you know, like Well, that. the Ahmadis,
1: I mean, we have to sign something on our passport, yeah. denouncing them from the religion before yeah. we're allowed to get a passport.
2: Exactly. And people don't realize how much discrimination there is in minorities and there's just this focus on, oh, only white people are racist, everybody else is. Yeah, women. I think
1: uh, minorities so. Minorities are romanticized, uh, well, yes. in the West, at least. However, yes. yeah, they so were just pure. You
2: know, we're just oppressed, and we just want rights. And you know, we wouldn't do anything bad to anyone else. That nothing could be further from the truth. You just need to go to our
1: countries and see
2: how we treat our religious minorities over there. To see right. how much right. discrimination. But those are
1: two different happening. contexts, right? Yeah. So, so within the context of the of the West. I don't think, like, Muslims have the power to oppress people outside of their own group. Yes, Of course, yes. they oppress other Muslims, they oppress yes. gay Muslims, they oppress ex-Muslims. Yeah. And until the non-Muslim bigots, the anti-Muslim bigots, uh, stop co-opting our voices, we will never be heard from within because then the, it becomes a numbers game. Because, yes, they are actually oppressing Muslims as a whole, They are discriminating against them. They are, you know, uh, shooting up at mosques. They are pulling off women's hijabs. So then our voices get lost within that. Yeah. And 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 I'm not saying that's fair, but I'm just saying that that becomes the larger discriminatory problem that is visible. Yes. And so how do we tackle everything? We have to make sure we're not giving bait to the people who want to. Um, discriminate against Muslims as a whole. Mm-hmm. We're not giving them our voices. Yeah.
2: I think I think what I see is that in the West, Muslims are only comfortable being victims, they're not comfortable seeing themselves as perpetrators like, they're like, oh, I'm not like, we Muslims, we've not done anything bad to anybody ever
1: Oh, absolutely, it's such a blind spot right, they never see the problem within themselves and even not getting something as small as a full, uh, unopened Coke can becomes the hugest (laughs) Islamophobic story right, Yeah. meanwhile they'll be like, openly like, oh, I don't want to hire you because you're gay or whatever whatever, right like or uh, you can't marry this person because he's too dark or yeah
2: and i think my biggest problem with the left is that they allow this behavior where muslims say we are only victims not perpetrators and the left is like yeah that's right there you are only victims and all the laws that we write have to kind of cater to you you know because you can't do anything wrong and and i agree over here there is a lot of you know anti Muslim bigotry and what happened in Quebec city, you know, it's, yeah. it's all terrible. I'm not, I'm not saying that that is right or that that should happen, but we, it's a very, very thin line to walk where it's like, yes, you are on the end where you're receiving hate, but you are also on the end where that you're
1: is dishing out it way. out. Yeah. Yes.
2: You have to accept that other part of yourselves, which Muslims do not want to do, and the left
1: has enabled but them. But you no, know, but you know who else right enables part. them, right? The right enables them. The right yeah. enables them by making martyrs and victims out of them, like legitimately. So that way, then, they, then there's no need. Like, there's always something to point to. Oh, well, look at that guy, you know. He pulled this person's hijab off. So how can we discuss how hijabs are, you know, oppressing women? Let's first, you yeah. know, protect hijabis. So it becomes this contest, and obviously numbers will win out. The numbers of the, the regular conservative Muslims are larger. Yes. Yes so no, it's I such absolutely. a it's become such a complicated problem under Trump, like all the things you're saying about the left, I completely and wholeheartedly agree with, and not under Trump, it felt more comfortable to press the left on oh yeah. Yeah. Because now it's like if you
2: say shit about Muslims, you're giving into the Islamophobia that is rampant under Trump. And, you know, you're making the situation worse.
1: And yeah, The anti-Muslim bigotry.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, like I said, I, I understand why why a lot of people in our community just don't want to get involved in these. I know. It's such a mess. Yeah, it is. It's like, where do you start? Where do you, you know, how can you have an impact? It's 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 very difficult. But I think that's the only way we'll get our voices heard if more of us are comfortable speaking up about this. That's the only way. Yeah, and remaining
1: principled.
2: Yeah, not being like, oh man, Fox News is giving me 30 minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. fine, I'll take it. All yeah. the Twitter followers that I'll have, I'll be honest, you know, like, I. I don't have a lot of Twitter followers, and it's so tempting to see people who have like, oh man, so many Twitter followers, and it's like, so I just need to like say some inflammatory stuff, and you know, get some like that's it.
1: Just be like, Islam, Islam sucks. (laughs) Five hundred retweets, exactly. Or then then (laughs) then compare it with the well, anti-Muslim bigotry also sucks. Like silence. Yes, exactly. And it's like, oh man, it's a
2: being the doing the quote unquote right thing, you're not gonna you're not gonna
1: win any popularity. No any way, yeah. Because <laughs> it sucks to do the it right thing. <laughs> it does. It's it's I mean it's a lonely path, right? Because you're just yeah. not you're not going the easy route and the left is just not helping you. They're yeah. constantly getting in the way of you speaking out and trying to silence you but you know that you have to get through to them and not the right because so so yeah it's a long fight that needs to be you know fought it's a long fight that requires (laughs) a lot of diverse voices some practicing muslims also um not every you know everyone has to stop being defensive the more you protect islam from Any critique, even well-meaning critique, the more you empower the bigots, for sure, because they then get inflamed that nobody is addressing this. And then they start to swoop in and address it from all the wrong angles. Yeah. Um, And it's just a vicious cycle. And then when the bigots become bigger and their voices become louder, then the left becomes... Um, more motivated to stay silent and refuse to address any criticisms with Islam because this is now a group that's for real being victimized. So,
2: yeah, what do you do? So I, I just want to thank you for, you know, giving my voice a, a more elevated platform, uh, you know, for, for being heard, having me on your show and, and talking about my article, you know, which I think, you know, I think this conversation that we let down on, you know, Islam and the left and and the right and all that stuff, I think this is inevitable when you talk about, you know, issues facing our communities, whether it's, you know, not being able to express our feelings or or women not having the same sort of rights as men, because this is all connected. This Mm -hmm. is all part of one big mess. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah.
1: Even though we wanted to talk about my article, I think it's inevitable that we would have ended up talking about these issues. Yeah, there's so many tangents that come yeah. from it, right? I'm yeah. just gonna I'm just gonna leave w- with one more quote from your article where you talk about your mom. She recognizes how she built her entire identity on being a mother and providing my siblings and I all the resources she could for us to succeed. And that's partly why she's so lost now. We're all grown up and living our own lives, and she's left to figure things out on her own once again. Now, I mean, I'm sure this is a thing that like many mothers experience, but but it becomes heightened in this context when you're a, a Pakistani woman who's main worth is like being a wife and mother right when uh-huh. you're left being neither of those actively you know yeah. she's obviously still your mother but she's not yeah you she's know. not
2: she doesn't need to provide for us yeah cook for us and tell us who to marry and you know like iron our clothes or do our laundry which yeah. is really sad when you think about like that's
1: her purpose think. of yeah, being exactly. yeah <laughs>
2: it's like that's what it is that's what it means to you to be a mother like what about the emotional needs that we have from our mom we want to talk to you we want to share with you we want you to share in our happiness but that's like no no i need to be doing something more tangible than that yeah you know we also
1: have a lack of hobbies you know if you notice in the older generation of pakistanis they just don't have hobbies yes they don't have any extracurriculars unless it's like cricket or whatever or but
2: watching tv watching yeah. tv is a great hobby
1: <laughs> yeah um but yeah there's like very little i don't know writing drawing photography yeah. reading you Re- know, like
2: It's it's unfortunate. It's like there's so much uh, there's so much a human life has potential to accomplish, and we don't even try to tap into it. You know, it's it's just like nope. You know, you had a couple of kids, and that's it. Potential
1: achieved. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure I'm gonna get some emails after this saying, "Well, what are you talking about? My parents read a lot. Yes, so do (laughs) mine. My parents read a lot." (laughs) (laughs) Again, I I can't give the disclaimer. I'm not talking about every single Pakistani
2: family. Just the 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 majority as i see
1: it yes yes there's a there's some serious work to be done yes and you take a step with shrooms
2: <laughs> <laughs> but we all
1: we all do what we gotta do man you know that's what i had to do yeah so props to your mom man she's uh she's cool for giving that a shot i mean i probably would be too freaked out and i'm like much younger than your mother and uh you know i <laughs> I don't know, shrimp, the idea of shrooms freaks me out, but. Yeah.
2: I think she didn't have any baggage, you know, she didn't really know anything about them. So she had no like, oh, I heard, I hear people freak out on them. She yeah, had yeah. absolutely no idea what happened. So she didn't really go in expecting a certain experience. She just had the most organic experience in my mind that she could have had without any judgment or preconceived notions about what happens on shrooms. And I think, that's, I think
1: that's the best way to do it. And you talk about her, like, you know, noticing colors and stuff, and it's really yeah. kind of cute. Like, she's like, is this guy, always been this blue and oh, that guy's shoes are so red and it's just like that would make a cute movie <laughs> maybe
2: someday someday yeah Director's mean, listening you know get in touch with me yeah okay. we can we can, do, we can make this happen
1: like, can so you imagine like, cool. like hum tv drama on this like that'd be oh, great that'd be my such mom
2: a... would get like death threats seriously <laughs> <laughs> she'd be like what have you gotten me into
1: i, know. I didn't sign up for this yeah I had to ask
2: i had to ask for her consent before publishing that article uh vice was like and before we published this so she had to read this and you know well that's
1: obviously that's the that's great that you did that's the ethical thing to do so i'm glad that she read it and she approved it and uh you know she didn't freak out that your full name is out there like what will her friends think if they see it or no so no no she was uh
2: i was i was like I, I think she understands that, like, I don't think anybody in her circle is going to really come across this. You know, I think she understands that. And and I asked her, I'm like, if someone, you know, does read it, what, how would you feel? And, and she thought about it. She was like, I wouldn't really feel any which way because this is the truth. Mm. You know, so even so she thought about what would happen if somebody she knows actually read it. And she's like, well, this is a part of me that you know nobody really knows about and they know about it and that's that you know she didn't really go like i'd be embarrassed or i'd be ashamed you know it's funny because
1: you said your brother you didn't want um you didn't want your mom tripping while he was around because he can be a bit judgmental about people taking intoxicants including alcohol
2: yeah she's like the goody goody no no drinking you know like i mean i don't think he's like that anymore so has he read it yeah, he's read it. Yeah, he's read it, and you know he he's actually done shrooms with my mom and I once mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, but he's uh, he's a little different. I would say he's probably the most different in our family in the sense that he's probably the most traditional, you know, where it's like, no, you shouldn't do intoxicants and, you know, they're not good for you. And I, he's very jaded by the fact that my father was an alcoholic. Oh yeah, of course. He doesn't want to drink because that's what alcoholism does. So, and that
1: absolutely makes sense for him to have grown up seeing that. And then for your father to meet such a tragic and horrible end, I mean, that could traumatize anyone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, And I understand what my brother has gone through because I was, like that as well in my early 20s like i didn't start drinking till i was 23 you know mm. because i was like i'm not gonna drink like i, I had an alcoholic father like yeah do you yeah. know what alcohol does you know and yeah it had, nothing, it had nothing to do with religion it was just seeing my father's alcoholism so my brother i think you know he hasn't really processed a lot of his emotions around these things again you know, we were talking about how men they're not really encouraged to do that because they're mm-hmm. seen as weak and stuff so my brother definitely i think has a little bit of that but He's read this and and I hope over time he'll be encouraged to open up about, you know, his side of things as well. But you can't push these things. You can't put someone uh, down and be like, hey, OK, listen, we need to talk about this. You need to address this, even though you don't want to. You need to. You know, like mm. people need to kind of come to it on their own on their own. So my brother knows that this door is available to him this 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 avenue for expressing himself it's there it's whenever he's ready and whenever he wants to take it he knows me and my mom and our family will be there for him
1: yeah yeah i think that's important that he just knows that he will not be considered weak and you're open to him expressing his emotions and slowly i think we can begin to change things by just putting our voices out there so Yeah, I agree. So yeah, so thank you so much for coming on and talking about your article, your experiences, um, your observations. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome. Awesome. Well, you take care and we will keep in touch.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via patreon patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes no e ian mangoes also you can follow me on twitter at nice mangoes if you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly patreon one you can do so via paypal nice at gmail.com remember no e ian mangoes if you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest you can email me there too A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help.